Hey everyone, welcome back to Staying Connected. This is Katie, your host, and today I have Christy with me who's going to talk to us about her story with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey Christy. Hi Katie. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It was um, really great meeting you this weekend in D.C. I know we've already talked about that, but I really can't express it enough. It was really great. And the food was good. <laughs> there was good food. <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you about your story with VEDS. I know that yours is a, um, you've ha known you've had VEDS for pretty much all of your life. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So how are you diagnosed? Okay, I recently turned 45, so being, uh, and I was diagnosed at 5, so I've definitely known my whole life. And um, when I was diagnosed, it was first clinically, and it took about a year to get the uh, results back. And then, of course, the tissue sample that was tested came back to confirm the clinical diagnosis. Um, and at that time, when they did the tissue biopsies, they uh, did not want to disturb any of my surrounding tissue. So they literally just pinched my skin, pulled it up, and cut it off. Oh. Um, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> I vividly remember it happening. I was five years old, and my grandmother and my great-aunt Shirley were in the room with me at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and it was um, it was hard. But the reason that happened was because my father had passed away. Um, he had a colon rupture, and he was undiagnosed, and he literally died in our kitchen one evening. Um, he had been walking around, hiccuping really loud, holding his chest, um, and he collapsed. And when he hit, when he collapsed, he hit the cold air return on the floor in the kitchen, and it ripped open his skin. So blood started coming out, and I was standing there, and his blood kind of covered up my toes. And my mom was on the phone with the with 911, and the ambulance came, and he had actually um, stopped breathing before the ambulance came. And when they got there, they were able to revive him and put him in the ambulance. And my mom jumped in with him, and the two of them left. And I was just standing there at like 10 o'clock at night in the dark outside crying. And then our neighbor um, came over. It probably was just a few minutes later. And took packed up a little bag for me and took, a, took me in. And she had three kids. Um, so I went with her. And that was... That was it. That was the first first house I stayed at. But his hospital stay lasted about two weeks, uh, and they I think immediately identified that his colon had ruptured. But it was he was very septic, and they did lots of surgeries, and he just didn't make it. It was just too weak, and he had lots of problems prior to that, and no one had um, connected them all. So he was pretty weak when that happened. Wow, so this is when you were five? <laughs> yes, yes, I was five years old. And then the crazy thing was um, the dot, one of his doctors had just had a patient in Chicago who had, I was living in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and some of the doctors come up from Chicago and do rotation from Green Bay. And one of the doctors had just had a patient who had passed from Marfan syndrome, and they thought for sure that that's what he had. Um, so that's what made them uh, go, go through a genetic panel at, during his autopsy because of this one doctor who just thought, you know what, he has Marfan syndrome. He didn't, but that's what they thought. Wow, so and, yeah. this doctor probably wouldn't have even thought about it 
otherwise. Yes, right. And they may never have even, yeah. I mean, but they looked at me and thought and said, well, she definitely has what he has. And when it came back, it was vascular EDS and not Marfan's. They said, for sure, she has it. And we're going to um, do, do the genetic testing. Wow. So then what was that like getting diagnosed at five? Um, you know, it's so hard because it's wrapped up in my father's death. There's no separation of it. So it, all in one foul swoop, I was fatherless and diagnosed with this disease that killed him. Um, and it was really scary. It was pretty scary. There are a lot of changes, a lot of adults around all the time. And I'm an only child. Um, so I just kind of was shocked at first and didn't really understand the implications. Mm -hmm. But then when I realized, you know, he's really not coming back, I used to travel in my mind. This is the best way I can describe it. I would kind of travel into this, down this tunnel, into this empty dark hole. And once I got to the dark hole, the pan I would have a panic attack. And I could feel it happening. And it was just, just this sense of nothing is, like there's no point to anything. Why am I here? At any point I could just die. And, and I could, my brain just could not make sense of it. And I could just travel down this hole and then have a panic attack. And it was awful. It would just be awful. But I knew I had a little bit of control over it because of that tunnel. <laughs> so if I, I finally started probably by 9 or 10 uh, being able to stop in the tunnel rather than reaching the entire black hole. And it, stopped, it would stop the panic attacks if I could get myself to focus my mind on something else. Um, but it took a couple years to figure out how to do that. And that just be, and if an ambulance went by, I would have a panic attack, and a lot of it was it was very hard, yeah. Wow, what did they tell you when you were like? What kind of resources were out there? What was it like growing up at that young mm -hmm. age with that? Well, in 1979, there's no internet. In all the 80s, no internet. And the information we had was from Duke University, and it was one paragraph long, and it was just what they, I think, taught in medical school at the time. So they really told me, um, protect my abdomen, never take gym class, and never have children. That's what they told me. As And they probably didn't tell me not to have children until I was menstrual age. Like probably, probably 12 was the first time I heard that I was never supposed to get pregnant. And, and doctors would made sure that I knew this. They were really concerned. And so, you know, I didn't even think I'd kissed a boy yet. <laughs> so I didn't really understand <laughs> that this was my responsibility. <laughs> yeah. But I said, okay, you know, all right. And um, so I've never taken a gym class and there was no sugarcoating it I mean I saw my father die so there was no like you'll be okay or we're gonna tell her what it's really like when she's older I got it I mean I knew whatever this was this was bad and it killed my dad and so I'd always be um, I try to be careful but you know you're a kid so just constant stitches and bruises and injuries but um, I I think I did okay because I never was in sports and I never had to, um, my body wasn't under that kind of stress. Mm -hmm. So I lucked out in that part, I guess. 
So now you're 45? I am 45. And I still don't even know what to do, right? I mean, it's so um, challenging. But like I would say in 2014, I decided I was going to join a gym. Mm -hmm. And it was a strength training gym. And I thought, well, as long as I know, you know, if I can talk through the exercises and all this stuff. But six months into it, I was so sore and so tired. And even though I was doing very little in terms of impact, um, it was too much. It was just too much. It can't, I, it's, we're so fragile. So now I just stick to walking. I don't try to, I don't do water aerobics anymore, nothing, walking. But I walk like 8,000 steps a day. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to work up to that. And I can't do that every day. But yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. That is good. So what have you been through so far in the 40 years that you've known that you have vets? Mm -hmm. um, well, going back to like my childhood and when I was first told and what that was like growing up with vets um, and what I've been through, I... Uh, the children in the neighborhood knew something was up with me way before I understood some of these differences. Like I would get teased because my um, legs bend backwards. They're hypermobile, so they bend back. Or I was teased for my fingers. And in, in fourth grade, my um, nickname, it's so long for a nickname, but it was Ethiopian French fry fingers. What? <laughs> It still makes me laugh. But in like 1984, whenever I was in fourth grade, um, there was always these commercials on for children who were starving in Ethiopia. Oh. So that's where the, and they looked very thin. Mm -hmm. So this is where the Ethiopian part of my finger nickname came in because people were always on TV from Ethiopia. So kids <laughs> just oh remembered that. I know. My fingers were always so skinny. And I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, um, I, I remember probably in sixth grade, all of us had our first little boyfriends and we're all in a little group together, like a clique. And um, some of the other boys that were dating my little girlfriends called, nicknamed me Skinny Minnie, as if this was a bad thing, right? Skinny <laughs> Minnie. But then they would say, oh, I would never kiss her because she's too skinny. And Aww. I would be like, well, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And so the teasing and the bullying started probably around then and it got worse in high school and it's usually by boys not by girls and I don't know if and you know we're told this is girls young women this is what uh, boys do when they like you is they hurt you right or they throw stuff at you or they call you names and it's like <laughs> I don't understand this but the people on the football team used to step on the back of my heels um, in high school and they would say let's see if we can make her bleed you know, and they'd step on my heel and rip the skin off. And it was it's full of scar tissue, both my heels. So it was pretty easy to rip that skin off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was very challenging times. Wow. So the bullying, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But you know what? All these things, like, prepare you for your life of dealing with doctors. I swear, if you can't stand up for yourself to the high school football team, you're never going to stand up to a doctor. <laughs> so, tell me about the different times you've had to stand up to a doctor um oh gosh it's so many 
I remember when I was really young, and the first time I asked a nurse not to tie that plastic or you know that rubber band so tight around my arm to take blood, mm-hmm. and she tied it, in my opinion, even tighter. And I was like, that can't be. So I was always doing these tests in my mind. So if I said this, what reaction would I get? So when I told her <laughs> that I'm very fragile, she seemed to tie it tighter. And that, and that, so I used to practice telling nurses, you know, you know, am I going to tell this one to tie it tighter, or this one? Am I not going to say anything and see what the result was? And it's like if you tell people how to do their job, they get a little mad. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed this. Same with doctors. So whenever I've um, pushed back or demanded some sort of curiosity, I usually get called names. I've been called drug seeker, drug addict, faker. Um, I was, oh, one time I waited. I, I, I was having surgery, and my plastic surgeon, who was reconstructing my hand after a horrible injury, um, that was complicated by vets, of course. He wanted me to go see a rheumatologist before the surgery because this plastic surgeon didn't know much about EDS or vets, but he wanted, but he thought for sure I did not have it. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do, but okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wait. I think I got on the waiting list. It was 12 to 14 weeks, and I'm putting off my hand surgery till I see this rheumatologist. So I finally get in to see him. And he looks at me and says, yeah, this could be EDS, but i got to tell you, I'm only interested in scleroderma. And I was like, what does that mean, you're only interested in scleroderma? And he's like, well, it means those are the only patients I'm taking on right now, and I have no interest in your case. Wow. <laughs> I, I was so frustrated because my surgery was being put off that I just um, cried. I just cried. I just tear. I couldn't even. I was so frustrated and so shocked. And tears came out. And he referred me to a, um, not even a therapist, a psychiatrist. What? He referred me to a psychiatrist because I cried in his office. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, no, you're being so rude and dismissive. What do you yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. So it's just constant. And then when I had finally had my hand surgery, that doctor sent a sample of my tissues to Dr. Peter Byers in Washington, mm-hmm. and I came back a second time positive for vets. And then when that diagnosis came back, my doctor called, called me at home, and I'd forgotten he sent the sample in. I was not at home thinking, oh, I might not have this at all. And so he called me and said, I need you to come to my office and please bring your husband. And I was like, oh, okay, no problem. So I show up. <laughs> I show up thinking, is he have like, is he going to, I don't know. Like I didn't even know what to think. And I show up and he said, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you have vascular <laughs> syndrome. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> And he said, well, the bad news is you really shouldn't have children. And I said, again, my husband that you're talking to with me is 20 years older than me. You don't think I planned this out? (laughs) He's had a vasectomy. Like, I understand this. But it was, you know, he really was emotional and felt for me. And then I realized when I left his office that I am the person with vets consoling him because he's having trouble telling me that I have vets. Mm -hmm. And you already knew. And I already knew, yeah. But, you know, now he knows. Oh, my gosh. 
What an experience. I, I think <laughs> I know. go through diagnosis twice. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I just don't know if all people are treated this way or people or if women are treated differently than men um, by doctors. You know, I, I just can't, but I'm hardly believed about anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's just very strange. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I never really thought about that difference. I know because I'm, you know, like I'm female, so when mm -hmm. I go to the mm -hmm. doctor, like I've been dismissed in the ER before many times, and I never really thought about the possibility that a man would have a different experience with this. Yeah, I mean, the, the rheumatologist, I assume, thought I was hysterical and sent me to a, referred me to a psychiatrist. It's like, I'm not hysterical. I'm so frustrated, and you're being so dismissive. Yeah. So with knowing that you've had this since you were five, were you able to avoid any serious complications as far as, like, bowel or arterial complications? Or have you had any? Um. Oh, no, I... Have, yeah, um, I don't know if, if I think the awareness has prolonged um, some of that from. Well, I don't know if that's the right word, prolonged. But <laughs> so in college, my first major um, vascular complication was my quadricep muscle ruptured spontaneously, uh, and I didn't even really feel it at first. Like I was sitting on a couch at like an after bar party at like four in the morning. Um, and this, well, anyway, so I was sitting there, and I, and everyone was ready to leave. We'd all been drinking beer for probably hours, um, and everyone's ready to leave. So I stand up, and I realize I can't actually stand. I can't put any weight on my leg, and it's I'm in some serious pain, and I'm like, what is happening? Um, and this was like 1994, um, so well before the ACA was in law and I didn't have any health insurance. I couldn't join I couldn't get individual insurance and there wasn't a group in our campus to join. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't go to the emergency room because I I didn't really I didn't really understand how serious my disease was. Um, I mean I did and I didn't and I just kind of ignored the pain. So then the next day uh, it, it was so excruciating and my roommates went down to the liquor store that was close by and got three or four bags of ice and we just packed my leg for about four days I couldn't put any weight on it and then I finally was able to stand up and get out of bed and go to the free clinic mm -hmm. and they were shocked about how my leg looked at now my leg is so giant it's swollen and it's kind of a weird gray color and they're like this this looks bad and they just gave me tight inflammatory pills and sent me on my way. And then a few days later, it happened again, and I was sober, and I felt it all. Like it just kind of, like a re I just call it like an aftershock, but I don't actually know what happened because I didn't see a doctor. I just let it heal over the next couple of weeks, and I just get packed in ice, my whole leg, and then I realized... Um, about six to eight months later that I was limping permanent I had like a permanent limp so it took another couple of years till I graduated from college till I you know moved to Chicago and got a job and had health insurance that I went on some to find some answers and 
I had my first uh, appointment with my rehab person or physical therapy and they were bending my leg in all these ways to try to figure out what's going on and then they f we figured out I couldn't I didn't ha I only had like three percent mobility in that leg Wow. so um, yeah yeah it was pretty bad but if I'm sitting down the leg moves fine but when I'm standing it's like a whole strange injury so we think that scar tissue attached to the tendons and stops my leg from moving and then it took another 14 years before I finally found a doctor to do some surgery to give me a little bit of movement back so I'd stop falling down Wow oh you know I don't know did you see my bad hand I don't think I've I didn't. shown it off. You didn't notice? It's from a cat bite. It required seven surgeries in five years of my life. It was insane. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. what happened? I was at a dinner party um, in Chicago and uh, at this woman's house, and she um, had said I'd been there once before hanging artwork for her and she had said her cat was uh, they just moved from Paris to Chicago and her cat was not adjusting well and he was kinda mean and whatever so he was never around I never went by him um, but then I was having dinner at, at this dinner party at her house and her and her niece were fighting uh, so I went to the bathroom and I had to walk past this where the cat was sitting and I was thinking to myself okay when you come out of the bathroom if they're still fighting just say hey I'm gonna get a cab I gotta go home mm -hmm. so I come out of the bathroom they're still fighting so I take a second to collect my thoughts and I reach down and I pet the cat oh. and he bit through my hand <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'm I've always had cats my whole life so it's not like I just was obnoxious like I walked over I let him smell my fingers a little bit he was fine and I just pet him mm -hmm. under his chin and then that was it and I lost the use of my dominant hand for years wow that required seven surgeries yeah I produce massive amounts of scar tissue which yeah. is a very complicating factor and I think that like doxycline you know that antibiotic yeah that people take I think that stops the production of all that scar tissue, but I can't get Hopkins to prescribe it for me. Oh my God, should I talk about my colon rupture? Yes, you should talk about your colon rupture. So my colon rupture. Um, so a couple weeks before my 40th birthday, I woke up, uh, pain woke me up at like four in the morning, and it was bad, really bad pain, but definitely not the worst pain that I'd had. Um, but it was pretty consistent pain and so I texted my primary care doctor um, who had given me her cell phone years prior and I had never used it <laughs> so okay. I texted her and said hey you know I got this pain it's I'm, I don't even know what to make of it and she wrote back immediately uh, have your husband get you some suppositories and see if you can have a bowel movement and I was mm -hmm. like okay so this this happens. I my Bob left the house, walked over to Walgreens, <laughs> got me suppositories. I'm lay so you can imagine. I'm laying on the bathroom floor trying to insert a, a suppository with this crazy pain. That's awful pain, and I don't know my colon has perforated yet. And so suppository gets inserted. Now it's probably like six in the morning, and nothing. Uh, the suppository gets inserted, and I wait 15 minutes. Nothing happens. 
at all. As I call her back, and she's like, you know, you should probably go to the emergency room. And I said, okay. So I went right to the ER, and they were pretty calm. They, they must have known pretty early on I was septic from my white blood count, I think, right? But um, didn't didn't really say much. They just came in and said, oh, now I want you to drink all this barium. I'm like, oh, God. And do all this and do this. So I said, okay. So I do all these tests. And then they came in and said, and I'm on morphine, luckily, for the pain. Mm -hmm. So then they came in and said, well, the truth is you're septic and your colon has perforated. And we've called in an emergency surgeon. And you're going to be in surgery in about 45 minutes. Wow. And I, I know. And I was like, I remember thinking, oh, okay, great. And I looked at my husband. And he looked devastated and then I was like okay I'm not reacting right <laughs> I'm not, I, I gotta get myself together because I'm on morphine so I feel pretty great about everything so I'm like okay I gotta collect myself and he Bob was so upset and so scared and I just remember saying well it's, it's gonna be okay and then my surgeon showed up and he was younger than me and I said, well, oh, now I'm worried. I don't think this is going to work out. But I never met this guy before. Nothing. And I get wheeled into surgery. And my plastic surgeon happened to be in the OR. And he saw my name get put on the board. And he came to check on me right before the surgery started. Wow. And that gave me such comfort and relaxation. So I could just be like, all right, this guy thinks I'm going to be all right. This guy thinks I'm going to be all right. So that was it, and then I woke up um, in ICU, and I've been, you know, had an ostomy, and then they moved me to a regular room, and I stayed there for like, I don't know, 10 days till my colon woke up, mm -hmm. and then they could send me home, and I had my ostomy for about eight weeks, and then we did the reversal surgery, which was successful. And all that's very risky and stuff, but yeah. I don't know. My surgeon was confident that my body could handle it, and I did. I did. But I, but in in less than eight weeks of time, or about eight weeks, I had 150 staples, 20 days in the hospital, and two bowel surgeries. So I was in bad shape. Wow. <laughs> I was about I lost about 20 pounds. I think I weighed about 98 pounds. About How the end of it. Forty. Forty. Thirty-nine and then forty when I had the reversal done. Yeah. So you're like five years out from that now. Yes. Yes. Everything's good now. Mm, my With stomach that. is different, but it's much better. Like, uh, much better than it, um, I feel good than I did. Than I, I feel a lot better. I was so weak for probably a year. And then that year I also had a hysterectomy after that. So it's a rough year. 2000. 14 maybe yeah it was a rough one but I feel good go? um it went it went all right it was harder than I anticipated and I have um, adenomyosis which is like severe endometriosis so for the past so from age 33 to 40 or 32 to 40 I was having um these monthly secular pains. So it would happen two days after I would ovulate, and it would last until my cycle started. And we were just um, treating it with pain medicine because I wasn't really sure what to do about it. And I'd seen a mini gynecologist and yada, yada, yada. Uh, 
no one really wanted to do surgery on me. But what was happening was I had tissue that had grown, a lot of tissue had grown around my uterus, and my uterus would contract every month to get rid of the foreign body mm-hmm. so I could have my menstrual cycle. So it was literally labor pains wow. <laughs> every month <laughs> for eight years. So the hysterectomy, while it was hard, I was just so happy not to have that monthly pain anymore because it was, I mean, life-altering. It was awful. That's, wow. Yeah, that was bad. That part was bad. I'm and just now, trying to imagine what that would feel like for eight years. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even imagine that I did it that long. But it wasn't until I moved to, um, then after my colon perforated, uh, right after, I moved to Baltimore. And this, there was a surgeon at in Baltimore, Hopkins, who was familiar with all types of EDS, including VEDS, and she's a um, gynecological surgeon. So I met with her, and she just was like, I can't believe you've been through this. We need to take it out immediately. <laughs> and I was like, wow. oh, good, okay. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Wow. So you mentioned earlier that you know the resources that were available to you were very, very few when you were first mm-hmm. diagnosed and through a lot of your life because of the lack of the internet. So what did it feel like when the internet came about and you found other people with beds? Crazy. It was so crazy. The first thing that I found was the Yahoo groups, which were so old. Um, Gosh, and yeah. over the weekend... <laughs> <laughs> when we were together and I met Kathy Bone, I was like, remember the, the Yahoo groups? And she was like, oh, my gosh. But I met so many people. Adeline, who passed, she was in the group before she had her baby. And she went back and forth because she really, really, really wanted to be a mother. Um, and then she finally decided to adopt. And she and so I remember that whole her fretting and going through all that experience about the adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else did I meet? I think Tara, maybe, from Michigan, uh, that's in our group. She, mm-hmm. I think she was pretty sure she was in the Yahoo groups. I want to say I met Jody. You know Jody? Yeah, Jody passed away a couple months yeah. ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you met all of them through a Yahoo group. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and at that time, it was just um, like a listserv. So you'd get, you know... You either get one an email every time somebody replies, or you could sign up to just get their group email. So then you'd get like at the end of the day a hundred messages. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I didn't have a computer at home, so all of this was done at work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which wasn't ideal either. Um, so I would be like, sometimes my boss would come in and I'd be like totally panicked or crying, and he's like, "What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "Oh." Nothing. I just read 80 vascular EDS messages, but I'm fine. (laughs) They couldn't say that because I didn't want to, you know, you don't really talk about your rare disease when you get your first job out of college. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard, though. I mean, that's a really, Mm -hmm. realistically, it's very hard when you read things that happen to other people and, you know, what kind of effect did that have on you from, like, I imagine when you grew up and you didn't have that resource... I mean, you just kind of knew what you knew, right? And that was it. Yeah. No, exactly. And I kind of felt like, well, I'd protected my abdomen, which everyone said, you know, and I'd made it to adulthood. 
So I kind of naively thought, well, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> but I, um, but my whole goal was always to get out of Green Bay and to get myself to a big city. I thought it'd be New York, but Chicago turned out to be excellent as well. And to just build my medical team. So I think more. It, it was really interesting to meet people who or to you know, get emails from people who had this condition because it meant I wasn't a liar. And even and doctors did not want to hear them from me. They didn't they could not help me. They didn't understand what I was talking about. You know, I had a my first internist in Chicago um, wanted to test me because I was always bruised when I'd come in and she wanted to do some tests to see if my blood was coagulating or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I've already explained to you why that is. I don't understand why you don't <laughs> want to <laughs> talk about my disease. Why do you think it's something else? And she just went off about how she knew more than I did about stuff. Not EDS. She knew nothing about that. But just that it doesn't make sense what I'm telling her. And she was shocked that I didn't want to know the answers. And I'm like, I have the answer. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, so, so having more resources available, I'm not sure. I, I have to really think about how it changes me or my attitude, but I think it it helps us more like having doctors hear that this is a real thing and that people have these struggles and we're really, really good at being fragile. Meaning like if I have an injury in my foot, I just stand on the other foot and I can hobble around and no no one would know I'm injured because right. I'm really good at being injured. <laughs> oh, I totally. That's I all, you know. Totally feel that. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's so normal. <laughs> but it doesn't mean it doesn't. Yeah, so I'm really good at that. I have 10,000 hours into being injured for sure. I'm an expert <laughs> at it. But it doesn't mean I don't need doctor's help. <laughs> right. <laughs> or some medical advice once in a while. Yeah. Yeah some thoughtful collaboration, but that doesn't seem to happen that often. Right. So living for 40 years with, with vets are actually 45. Um, what yeah. is something that you would tell somebody who is younger and living with vets? Hmm. It's interesting. It's an interesting question. I guess I would say um, that really VEDS is such a small part of you, your brain, for example. I mean, VEDS is just such a small part of you. Uh, it feels like it's all of you, but it's not. I mean, you're, you're able to make other people laugh and you enjoy the sunshine and there's so many things that life is about that I would focus more on that and just, you know, let life unfold how it unfolds. If that means you have to go to the emergency room, okay, that's what it means. Or if it means you don't, you have to keep canceling on your friends, okay, that's okay. I mean, you'll get through it. You're just still you. There's so many parts of you that are not vets and just focus on those things. And don't be hard on yourself. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. Good, I hope. Yeah, I have mentored some young girls over the years, mostly with um, with anything that they want to talk about, of course, but it's almost always sexual questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. They always want to know about 
sex and how to do it and is it going to hurt and will they have bruises or why do they have bruises from sex and is that okay and do they have to tell their parents? <laughs> oh I know, it's sweet. It's sweet. I mean, there's a lot of personal questions people have. Yeah, and that's one with. that I don't think people bring up a whole lot Mm -hmm. is sex, especially with beds. yeah it's I agree I mean sometimes it's fantastic and other times it's not that great <laughs> it hurts it can hurt for sure Yeah. ugh, Well, and I had always had a hickey when I was in high school I, oh I don't my know what happened gosh, to me I swear. Somebody can just, <laughs> like, kiss me the I wrong know way, and then I have I a know freaking hickey. It's so embarrassing. Oh, my gosh. My ex-girlfriend loved to give me hickeys. <laughs> But she loved it. I'm like, stop. <laughs> I know. I, you know, that's funny. I've attracted these people, some people as well, that seem to have almost like a bruise, where it's like, oh, look at, watch you bruise. Look at that. And it's like, Oh my no, no, god. don't do that. So what has it been like dating with beds <laughs> for you before you met your husband? uh, yeah, it was pretty... Oh. complex I'd say um, in my early 20s it was I was living in Chicago I had great girlfriends we watched Sex and the City every Sunday night together so we really thought we were hot tamales but um, eh, and we got a lot but uh, you know I, I, uh, when do you say this to this person who who's also 25 if we're both 25 and we're looking just to have fun does it matter if I'm sick Do I have to share that with him? Does, you know, I, I don't have to, but then when we're intimate, if there's bruising that's happening, you know, <laughs> you don't want to scare the guy. So it would always come up sometimes, but just in a very top line way. Yes, I'm fragile. Yes, I have it under control. It's none of your business, essentially. But then when you get serious, you kind of have to say right off the bat at age 27, uh, I'm not having children. So. just so you know. And a lot of guys were not up for that. A lot of those one guy I was madly walked away. So you just, you know, have to be honest and ready and it's really complex though. And so they ended up dating my boss, who I'm now married to. And he just provided everything I was looking for. He had a vasectomy already, he had grown children, he was mature enough to know how to love uh, living life and wasn't so worked up in like milestones, you know, like Mm -hmm. having this job by 35 and this much money and this for retirement, none of that. He was, he was older, he didn't, he was much more advanced. <laughs> and it kind of just sunk, would sit, sinked in well with what I was looking for. So I recommend dating an older person for sure. Awesome. That's a great recommendation. <laughs> I'm glad that you, like I had a similar experience, you know, very recently. So it's, it's really cool to hear you say that because it is harder Okay. <laughs> Good. to relate I'm so for me glad. to, pe to people my age when dating. For sure. We're just so um we our our lives require a sense of maturity that other people don't have to have at all. They don't have to worry about these things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you at so least much. not at 30. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope it's good. If it <laughs> turns out bad, we'll do it again because okay. I get nervous. I want to, <laughs> <laughs> I think you did great. I want okay, to apologize good. to everybody listening for all of the background noise on my end.
I'm trying a new place on recording, and clearly this was not the right location. <laughs> so you might have heard an ice maker, um, cats fighting, a dog whining, and then a cat trying to get out of a room that I locked him in after he got in a fight. <laughs> so I apologize for any of those background noises. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope that it doesn't take away from anything that you had to say because I think everything that you said was so important. Oh, good. Well, Katie, thanks for all the good work you're doing for our community. It means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm so glad I got to meet you, and I look forward to seeing you again hopefully soon. Me too. Let's do it. All we'll right. figure it out. <laughs> okay, Katie, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. And okay. thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Staying Connected. I have episodes coming out on the last Sunday of every month. So go ahead and hit subscribe and share this podcast with other people, especially if they're interested in vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.